0: Will Detroit's automakers survive the crisis they're in? That's today's topic on AutoLine Detroit. The media frenzy is over. From last November all the way to last week, the coverage of the downfall of the American auto industry was making headlines the world over. But now that most of the massive layoffs are over, the plant closings are completed, and the dealer cuts have all been announced, there's an eerie calm that has settled over the industry. And so we're about to enter a new phase of this crisis. Now the question is, can Detroit's automakers pull themselves out of this morass and go on to be competitive car companies again? To get to the bottom of that question and explore what has to be done, I've invited three colleagues to join me in the discussion. Michelle Krebs is a senior editor with Edmunds.com, Daniel Howes is a columnist for the Detroit News, and Sean McElinden is the economist for the Center for Automotive Research. While the media frenzy may be over, there's still a lot that has to be resolved before this industry gets back on its feet. And we'll be getting into what all that entails right after this. From our studios in the Motor City, this is AutoLine. Here now is John McElroy. Welcome to this latest edition of AutoLine Detroit with Michelle Krebs from Edmunds.com, Daniel Howes from the Detroit News, and Sean McElinden from the Center for Automotive Research. Let's get right into it. We've got so much to cover here, Daniel. Uh, And I'll start with you. Everybody in town here wants to know, are GM and Chrysler going to be able to get back on their feet?
1: Are they? Well, my sense is that I think GM definitely is going to be able to get back on its feet in some form. Um, I, I, there's too much political pressure and power behind it for it to fail. Uh, Chrysler, I think, is going to be a little dicier proposition as we go forward. I think near term, again, they're going to have some political support. But uh, uh, I think the next 24 months are going to be very critical for them as as they try to pull themselves together with fiat without a lot of money from Fiat. I've always been very skeptical of this deal. I said, from the first day, everything you needed to know was in the fact that Fiat wasn't putting any money in this deal. And as we've looked at this as it's played out, we realized that Fiat really doesn't have a lot of money to put into any kind of deal. Uh, and it's got its own issues with its own corporate debt back in Italy. So I think this is a very much an opportunistic play on the part of Fiat and Sergio Marcioni, the CEO. Uh, to try and get scale, because he knows that the only way they're going to remain a player is if they get a scale that's somewhere in the order of 5 5 million cars a year, and that's what they're trying to do.
0: Michelle, what do you think? Are GM and Chrysler going to be able to recuperate here?
2: I would agree, too, that GM will survive in some form. I still think it could be an even smaller form than we've talked about now. I have questions about some of the divisions. Um, but in terms of Chrysler, the other issue that they have is they've got another 18, 24 months before they can get any new product. They're stuck selling the same product they have been all along and that hasn't gone so well.
0: Yeah, but that doesn't talk to the, you know, getting together with Fiat and how it'll grow out of there. I'm with you completely. They they don't have new product and they're gonna have a hard time selling the same stuff for the next 18 months or whatever, but what's your sense of how Chrysler and Fiat might go together?
2: It's going to be interesting. I mean, that, that company's gone through a lot of, uh, you know, forming with companies that have different cultures, and it'll, it'll be interesting to see how that has. But I just, keeping afloat, you know, with the same, in a dicey economy and dicey uh, auto market is going to be challenging.
3: And John, what's your view on it? Well, the administration's making a $100 billion bet, uh, politically, uh, that these companies are going to emerge for a while. And that's obviously their biggest life insurance policy. That's almost too much uh, money for those kinds of politicians to walk away from, let's face it. But it could be very, very small companies. You know, between the two of them, it could be close to only 20% combined market share uh, two to three years from now. It's interesting on the Fiat uh, Chrysler uh, merger that the one thing Daimler didn't share with Chrysler was technology. And the only thing Fiat's sharing with, uh, with Chrysler is technology, so we're going to get the other side of the mirror here. You know, was that the solution to the prior joint venture that wasn't there? And uh, we can only hope so, and so could uh, the government that's put so much money in this deal. GM, a very complex company. I see problems there. Their engineering spread out all over the world, and it's crumbling like a cake in a rainstorm, you know, at Opal. Uh, you know, at Opel, obviously, but at Daewoo Auto I mean, Technology.
1: It seems to me they haven't really yeah. totally lost control of Opel all. I I would dissent with that. I, I'd, I, from what I, the way I read how that deal is supposed to go together, I think that's core. I mean, we, we did a story in the news a week or two ago about the fact that the global footprint of GM is going to emerge from this intact. And Outside report, of the United States, and, that right, is. And, re, and reported this whole thing out because they're still going to have contr- they're still going to have operational control of Opal and be able to avail themselves of that engineering that they need not only in Europe but they need in markets all around the world. Uh, Sean's right, though. I mean, it, it, the question I think becomes in how it's implemented. You know, who's going to be calling the shots? You got a Russian partner, you got an Austro-Canadian partner. Well, do we? I mean, you know, the the latest word right
0: now is uh, the bids are open again. Ripplewood, which had been in there and dropped out is
1: back. And I think it was a week or, I think a week before last, it was at the National Summit. It was last week. Fritz Henderson, the CEO of GM, made it very clear uh, that uh, it wasn't done. And I think that was a calculated move on his part uh, to try and probably get the deal done. There's no question in my mind that, that General Motors thinks that the Magna, uh, Russian deal is the better deal for Opel. But, That's but the if, deal they then want.
0: why not sign the deal? Why why open the uh, the, the bidding process again to, to Be, new? You know now they've got they're uh,
1: GM and they like to drive hard bargains. I mean look what's happened with Delphi for of these many years. Yeah, but it's still there and they, they tried to
0: drive a hard bargain with Fiat and that blew up. I, I'm not I don't buy what you're saying that they drive hard bargains and I, I'm just puzzled that all of a sudden now uh, Beijing Automotive Industry Company is is invited to come back and bid again Ripplewoods invited to come back
1: backup is, plan. well let me defend myself plan, John, let me way, defend myself yeah, when okay, i say yeah, yeah. they drive hard bargains what i mean is i think that they have a corporate and a cultural tendency to continue negotiating mm-hmm. now whether they think it's driving a hard bargain or it's not it, it continues to lengthen out the process and we've seen it time and time again with this company at various iterations in this in this decade um, and they would think of it as hard bargaining. Other people would think they're just screwing around, but, but the bottom, the net effect is that they've now opened it up again. Uh, they're gonna have to get this thing, this thing done and they're gonna have to get it done quickly because it's, it's gonna impact their investment thesis going forward, it's gonna impact everything as to product whether portfolio. or not- Product portfolio. as to whether or not, and that's the point that Sean's making, and I think it's a, that, in that sense, it's a very valid one. Um, But I I know what they want to do is they want to be able to retain some engineering, uh, retain access to the engineering coming they out of They have to. Look, all,
0: all their mid-sized car come out of, for the U.S. market, right. comes out of Opal. All their Latin American product, car-wise, pretty right. much comes out of Opal. Small cars
2: And out of Korea.
1: And, and he's made, and, and, and the people we've talked to, I've talked to about this, have said that their, their, their minimum is 35%. They prefer 40% control of stake of Opal. There were initial plans where they were looking at as low as 20, and I think it was Fiat that was pushing that and they said, don't come back and talk to us unless it's gonna be 40.
0: Michelle, what's your view of how this has changed? Because I thought the, the Magna uh, deal you know, with Sperbank, the, the Russian bank, I, I, it seemed to me like this was all put together.
2: I wonder if someone got scared. I think there's something we don't know that happened at the bargaining table or when uh, disclosures were made. But it certainly looks to me like they're lining up some players just in case.
0: Now the Russian bank Sberbank is also tied in with Gaz. Yeah, that's where I was just going to. Now be. Bo Anderson, the right. ex-head of right. purchasing at GM, has gone to be on the board of directors of Gaz. I hear they're not happy at General Motors that oh, he I, went
1: to Gaz. I said I saw when I saw Fritz Henderson at this at this event. I said to him, I said, so now you've got Bo, your man in Nizhny Novgorod, and he, he thought that was he kind of didn't know how to take that, and, and I thought that was very strange. The other thing that's interesting is that is that Gaz is also is controlled by Oleg Deripaska, which is one of the mm-hmm. one of the oligarchs in Russia, and has a, a love hate kind of relationship with Putin. I think what you see going on here too, which is very interesting, is you got the United States, where the president of the United States essentially owns a controlling stake in, the, in, in General Motors, uh, in in a business partnership in Europe with a Russian partner that is controlled essentially by the Prime Minister of Russia. Now, I mean, I mean, you so talk, talk about it's you talk more <laughs> politics, yeah, and more po- power politics. Like, I mean, it's like 19th century European yeah. power politics. <laughs> Well, Sean, is
0: uh, is the government really going to be running these companies, and the UAW, for that matter? I mean, Chrysler is, what, 55% owned by the UAW tr- Trust Fund now for the ViBA General Motors is, what, 30, no, 17.5% 17. 17. Yeah. F- by the union right now, with warrants to buy even more control. Are well, they well, really these, going to have a say Well, hold on to your
3: companies? chair. Actually, right now, um, the UAW Viba Trust owns about 68, 69% of Chrysler. And... Uh, Jim Blanchard, their, I guess, nominee for uh, their board seat for 69% ownership. But uh, I do believe the union does want to get out, but do, does not know how to get out of that equity ownership. It's very unpopular with the rank and file. It reminds them of Enron. Um, in what way? What do you mean? What, well, general? having your retirement, uh, some portion of your retirement, a very major portion of your health care, uh, invested in company stock. I mean, the union has railed against that for years. Mm-hmm. You know, showing on the cover of their magazines Enron logos. And here they are, 69% owner of Chrysler, and it's all their retiree health. Mm-hmm.
0: That's a good but, point, I mean, if, yeah. if Fiat owns Chrysler, how as the union do you sell your Chrysler stock mm-hmm. to be able to pay for the, the VBA cost?
3: This is a trick, there's a warning at the end of the labor agreement that this may not work out standby, you may see cost increases within, there is no long-term VBA money uh, inside of Chrysler was passed on to the Viva, like as the case at General Motors. No money, not a penny. That's so, why I thought it was interesting
2: yeah. that the bondholders complained they weren't getting such a great deal. That's a, that's a pretty risky deal that the union has taken. It's
3: the only deal that was possible. Right. And it's just like the government was the only DIP financier in this this economy. There there weren't any choices here, any choices at all uh, going forward. So I, I I see the union getting out. As for the uh, As for the uh, government uh, walking away uh, and risking a possible collapse, um, I guess Renault uh, was bought by the government in 1946? Yes. 100% and now they're down to 15%. Took them a long time a to get there. Later, Took them a long right. time to get there. I guess that's there. my point, Deanna. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I could see the
1: UAW getting out of this much more quickly yes. than than, if they than the government, if they they government. can. If I mean, I think I think it. They they need to. They need to. Mm-hmm. They need to. They're going they to have bills they got to pay. And they need to essentially liquefy their stake uh, to, as quickly as they can and practically can. And I, they're going to try to do that. I'm sure. I don't know how easy it's going to be though. Well, they they still have to be two to three years away before they can
0: do it because I mean, a number one, you know, uh, GM still has to come out of bankruptcy, either keep the stock they got or issue new stock, a, a bankruptcy judge will have to make that determination, and then there's going to be no trading in that until somebody sees, or the, the market sees, that GM's
1: recuperating in some The way. real, te- I think the real issue here is going to be one of execution. They've got business plans out there, and they're going to have to execute, them. the marketing's going to have to be smart, um, the products are going to have to nail their segments, um, they're just going to have to be. It's going to have to be flawless execution in every step of the process, coming out of the plants, coming out of the design, engineering. You name it. Um, because I think people are going to be looking at it and they'll give them a shot, give them a pass from time to time. You know, the good thing about GMs, they do have some good product coming. The Camaro looks great on the streets. Um, I don't know, how, and, and we'll see how it does in, in sales. But uh, they've got other products coming as well. What's your sense, Michelle? Do you think
0: the union and the government are going to try to be calling shots at these companies or, or pretty much just leave their hands oh, I, off it?
2: My sense is they'd like to get out as quickly as possible. its I don't think that they can do it that easily. Um, but they they certainly better be calling some shots and or at least having their say. I mean, they are representing... Let's remember, it's, we're the taxpayers that own it. Uh, they better be looking out for our interest. And, uh, and same with the union.
1: I think the White House, though, has a real credibility problem <laughs> in, this, in this issue, in this town. Uh, the President of the United States himself, not his proxies, has said publicly many times, we've all heard it, I don't want to run GM. He's running GM. He's calling the shots. He fired the CEO before he had a single share of the company. He's moved to reconstitute the board. He's He's t- got him to reverse a plant decision that they were going to bring small cars in from China, and now they're going to build the plant, or retrofit a new plant, an old plant here. I mean, it's just not true.
3: It's just simply not true to be saying that we're not running the company when- uh, That's not the biggest issue, Dan. The biggest issue is whether he's gonna run the industry and the market uh, in policy replaces competition. And no, the auto market yeah, thats bigger than just running mean? GM or well, Chrysler. Well, but which—but but that. Yeah. Come
1: on, Sean. That's not an esoteric question in this yeah. town, uh, and, and I think to a lot of people in the industry. But I think you raise a good point. I mean, Thanks. this is kind of the way of getting in. The, get it, hes positioned himself clearly to be setting industrial policy, the likes of which we haven't seen in ever, And this probably since World War II in this town. Um, and
3: n- n- not outside of Western Europe. Private, private transportation could turn into a utility, frankly, you know, run the same way. Um, the rules and regulations may have to be slanted, obviously, towards the government owned entities, and you can't, you can't resist it
0: be fascinating to see if it if it really does go that way. Michelle, what, what about Ford? I mean, you know, here GM and Chrysler have gotten all this government money. It's it's wiped out most of their debt. It's given them far more competitive labor rates. Uh it, it's broomed out so many of their dealerships. Is Ford at a disadvantage?
2: I kind of hold my breath on Ford because can they get things going and get the and can we get the economy going so that they can avoid any uh, government loans or anything like that, but they certainly have challenges, and they are at, at some ma- they have some major advantages. Not having the government to <coughs> call the shots on how you run your company is, is a huge one, but they do have some uh, major disadvantages. They've got big loans they have to pay back at interest rates that you know are set in a timing set. So to me, that is a very huge disadvantage.
1: They just got a big uh, chunk of dough mm-hmm. from the from the energy department. Uh, Six billion, $6 billion, just, just shy six, of $6 yeah, billion. Which, just, which is certainly going to help them. Right. Uh, I think Michelle's right. But again, I think they also, they are, are reaping the benefits, I think, near term of the situation that they're in. I think one of the biggest dangers for Ford uh, is uh, the, the old culture rearing its head, the, the swagger, the, the confidence. You're hearing stories of Alan Mulally and, and, and the CEO and Mark Fields, the President of America, signing autographs for employees in the lobby of the Glass House. That ain't a good thing.
2: And they aren't making money and, and aren't and, going to for a while, so.
1: Exactly, so I mean, all this is relative. Do, do you, does, it, does it feel good? Does it feel like they have a sense of purpose? Absolutely, Do they, are they a more disciplined company? Yes, I think they are. Is the product better than it's been in a long time, if not ever, absolutely true. But there's a lot of things that they can't control, and let us not forget, two of their major competitors are on their backs. And that gives them a, a much wider field. Even Toyota. Toyota lost more money in the first three months of this year than Ford or General Motors did. So it's not easy sledding for anybody in this market. And so I think the deck's getting, you know, but they have to be careful not to get overconfident. Very careful. What's your sense, Sean? Yeah. Well, it's yeah. Ford you know,
3: at a disadvantage. I'd like to see Ford come back to profitability sometime next year with any kind They're of. They're saying
0: market. it will not be until 2011. That's as a nice
3: done supposedly. Yeah, you know, uh, that's kind of what Dan wants them to say, you know, but they did lose (laughs) less money also than uh, Honda and Nissan. In fact, they they had a magnificent first quarter before they really got out of the gate They've picked up all this market share Uh, They are going to pass possibly General Motors by the end of the year uh, And maybe stay ahead of Toyota. So I don't know if they're not allowed five minutes out of the building to have a party But you know pat themselves on the back a bit by surviving Um, but uh, Obviously, you gotta be a turnaround in the economy and in the market to make all of this happen. Um, it really, to a certain extent, it won't be about company planning, management, culture. It's about the economy mm-hmm. in stupid. the long run. <laughs> yeah, stupid.
2: And lucky timing. I think one of yeah. the things Says they the have economist. to be careful. Yeah, right. <laughs> one of the things they have to be careful of is that thinking that they were so brilliant, more yeah. brilliant than everybody else, they got very lucky on timing. I mean, we did not think that was a, we thought that was a very risky move when they borrowed all that money. Yeah, it was kind of lucky.
0: Timing was very good on that, no mm-hmm. question about it. So, uh, Sean, I guess you don't think Ford's gonna have to go to the government for money then, if you're thinking they might turn a profit. Well, just
3: ignore sometime. the little loan they received today. Uh, and they also have, I guess, some um, applications in for more, which could mean that uh, a lot of their new product going forward on, on the new CAFE uh, uh, you know, uh, regulations is gonna get paid for with low-cost loans. Mm-hmm. That shows up in the debt structure too. And from but, other
2: governments as well.
3: Yeah, yeah. Right. But let's give Malali credit. I mean, he came in for a month, looked around and said, this is a mess. Yep. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's bet the, the Mustang logo and borrow all we can. The lucky part was what there was a market to borrow from right. and a low rate of interest for this Chinese money. You know, they came here for years and he got away with it. Uh, GM should have done the same thing. I can tell you, by the way, they did go to the market to borrow. Uh, not at almost as much money three or four years ago, but that was to tap off the pension fund, mm-hmm. you know, so... Essentially, GM is a rolling pension fund. Ford is a rolling car company. <laughs> <laughs> well, we keep talking about car companies, but Dan, how
0: come Washington will not help out the supplier industry?
1: That's a great question. I think, they, uh, I think they're trying to, a couple things. One is they're trying to facilitate con- consolidation. Uh, two, they think that the, the, that the auto companies themselves have some responsibility in that. And three, I don't think they're necessarily persuaded that uh, some failures is necessarily gonna be a bad thing. One of the things that I remember in some conversations I had with, um, I think it was somebody at Delphi, who was involved in this whole conversation between GM and the task force and everything, is that the people in the task force had a very rudimentary, almost childlike understanding of, well, why can't you just cancel these contracts and go get them from another supplier? And they had to spend a lot of time educating people on what this, on the sophisticated intricacies of the supply chain, and the impact of, of one shutdown on another, and what if you stop shipping to General Motors, what that could do to Toyota and what it could do to Honda, etc. And um, I, I think that's still going on, and. Uh, I, so I suspect that a lot of it has to do with consolidation. You know, they've, they've approached this whole thing as from consolidation from the beginning. I mean, Stephen Ratner, the head of the task force, wanted to, to do a deal between GM and Chrysler. Mm-hmm. That was his preferred option, his way to, 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 as a deal guy. And when it became obvious that that was politically untenable, that's when they went to Plan B, and that's why Fiat, why they did it in alliance with a foreign uh, manufacturer. Michelle, what do you think about the the suppliers? I mean,
0: uh, I'm surprised that we haven't seen more of a collapse, but maybe we just have to wait a little bit more before that happens. That
2: may be, too. Um, I think, too, that they are not big, high-profile companies that everybody knows the name Mm of, Mm -hmm. um, whereas GM and Chrysler are. So there's a political aspect of you can get away. And the American public is fed up with all the uh, bailouts. So if it's a no-name supplier, it's, uh, you know.
1: John, it may be different in, in the summer when we, and Sean can speak to this better than I, than I can, but when they start to restart production, mm-hmm. that the cash needs are gonna be greater for these guys. They're, they're kind of in this fetal position right now, from uh, as I understand it, and when they have to start buying material to start shipping products again to, to the OEMs, then it could be a very different uh, situation. Is that how you see it, Sean? The little
3: guys don't have the money to buy the materials, so and with inventory's lower, we're running the risk when production fires up for at least a couple of months they're not gonna be able to respond. I, Washington doesn't understand manufacturing in general. This is our most complex integrated portion of manufacturing with many tiers operating and coordinating uh, with a small set of same customers. And they don't understand. Well, I could say though that we keep predicting this disaster and every month it seems to be pushed over, mm-hmm. it's next month, Right. Mm-hmm. it's next month, and it's next month. And, I don't know whether it's because purchasing at all of the companies in North America are working very hard on this, and, you know, stacked up and, and consolidated uh, enough to prevent things from happening, or our luck has been good and it's about to run out and we'll have this bottom-up crash, which will be bad. You know, it will cut off, um, you know, for the economy. Clearly, it could crush a recovery, but clearly the task force and the administration have decided to run the risk They've been told the industry needs to consolidate by 30%, suppliers have to go away, mm-hmm. yeah, it, it's unpopular. Uh, the bailout, you're right, 80% of Americans hate it, they just they don't, don't dislike it. So feeding it off to nameless little companies, forget it, let Darwinism right. take its course over the summer. You know? well,
0: well, I think we're probably very close to seeing Darwinism uh, rear its ugly head in the industry because uh, you know, as you all have pointed out, once they crank up the plants again, uh, it's gonna be very difficult. But we're gonna have to wrap this up right now, but we still haven't gotten to the topic of dealers. So we're gonna leave the cameras rolling and we'll get into an extra section, but this is going to conclude the broadcast version of the show. So Michelle Krebs, Daniel Howes, Sean Macklin, and thank you all. I'll be back in a moment with some closing thoughts. As I mentioned, we're going to keep the cameras rolling and talk about what's going to happen with all the dealers that have been let go and how that will impact GM and Chrysler. You can watch that on our website at www.autolinedetroit.tv right now. And if you think you need more than just a weekly dose of what's going on in this industry, check out Autoline Daily, our six-minute daily webcast that covers the breaking news in the global automotive industry. On Thursday nights, we're pioneering a new format with a live webcast called Autoline After Hours. My co-hosts for that show are longtime public relations executive Jason Vines and the publisher of autoextremist.com, Peter Delorenzo. That's at 7 p.m. Eastern. But that wraps up this edition of Autoline Detroit. You can catch us here same time, same day, next week, here on Detroit Public Television.